wanted to just talk about, kind of revamp, uh, kind of an overall view of the book of Mark. So far, that we've been through two different sections. We've been through eight chapters, but two sections. Uh, section one is uh, Jesus really being revealed. He comes onto the scene, and in Mark, he kind of comes on bluntly. He shows up all of a sudden, because uh, to the Gentile or the Greek believers, they didn't have the Old Testament prophecies that they were reading all the time like the Jewish people did. And so he just shows up on the scene. And uh, he has John the Baptist as his predecessor. He comes on the scene. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he ushers in when Jesus shows up. And then, uh, so that's Mark chapter 1 through about chapter 2, verse 12. Section 2 is Jesus receiving tons of opposition by clergy, by the religious leaders, by the scribes and the Pharisees, um, and really by anybody that disagreed with who he was. Jesus said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. He said he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so uh, you can understand when lots of people say, well, if he's the only way, then my way is wrong. That's offensive to them. And so they opposed him because they thought that they were going to get to heaven based on their own works, the things that they've done by following the law. And so Jesus came along not to say, okay, the law is no, no longer uh, available or, or necessary. He came to fulfill the law so that you and I would be freed up from trying to fulfill these requirements and we could just freely follow him. We could do what he said. You know, and I was just talking earlier with uh, a gentleman about 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Uh, Paul told all the people that he talked to, he said, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so that's what our lives are supposed to look like as Christians. We're supposed to imitate Jesus. And then as we do that, call other people to go, hey, imitate me as I'm imitating the Lord. Because that's really the way that we find true joy in worshiping him. But Jesus, as he's walking in this world, it's not going easy for him. And he's being opposed on every front. And so from about Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through chapter 8, verse 26... That's what we've been looking at. Jesus the servant being opposed by those that didn't really like him. And then Jesus instructs. That's the, the section that we're in tonight. It starts about Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And it goes through chapter 10, verse 52. So for a while, we're going to be in a section where Jesus the servant instructs those servants that are following him. They want to be like him. They see him for who he is. and They, they just want more of it. And so he's instructing them along the way. So the section that we entered a couple weeks ago starts to focus on Jesus' specific teachings. Taking the focus off of the interactions that Jesus had with those that were opposing him, kind of backing away from that and focusing in on those that are willing to follow him. And that's important for us, right? Because we're here not just because we want to you know, spend an hour sitting in a building, but we want to hear from the Lord. And so he's wanting to speak to us. And these gentlemen have been following along with him through lots of opposition because they want more of what he had. And so as they're there, he teaches them. He explains to them the things of the, pertaining to the kingdom of God. Some of them are very easy things to receive and some of them are difficult things. So <clears throat> as Ezra shared with us last week, not the book of Ezra, but Ezra Valencia, uh, he shared with us last week, Jesus was asking the men some important questions and he was using them as teaching tools. He asked them the question, who do men say that I am? They were walking along uh, this path. They, were, uh, they went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi and on the road, he asked the disciples, he said, who do men say that I am? That was verse 27 of 
chapter 8. And so they answered, John the Baptist, Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. Now, Matthew chapter 16 inserts, and it doesn't insert, it's just something that Matthew noticed that Mark didn't remember to write down. But he noticed that some of the people thought he was Jeremiah. So to take a second and answer why, why, okay, my first question is why would they say that? Why would they think he was John the Baptist? Why would they think that he was Elijah? Why would they think he was one of the prophets? John the Baptist at this point in the book of Mark has already been killed. Why would they think he was John the Baptist? He's dead. Elijah, dead. Jeremiah, long since gone. So why would they think that he was one of them? Well, to answer that question, we have to look at those guys. John the Baptist, when he came on the scene, he preached repentance and baptism. Jesus, when he first came on the scene, after he was baptized by John the Baptist, apparently they didn't know that John the Baptist baptized him, they thought he was John the Baptist. But as he came on the scene, he, pre he preached the same thing that John the Baptist did. He said, repent, the kingdom of God is near. So you could see why they might get the two confused. And he was kind of fiery too. You know, when he went into the temple, he starts turning over the tables. He's, he gets upset about things. And, and he had this holy anger. Um, so then there was Elijah. Elijah was known for being used by God to do miracles. And these miracles were out of this world, some of the things that he did. So with Elijah doing miracles, and now they have Jesus right before them, healing blind people, feeding 5,000 to 25,000 people, you can see where they might get the idea. This guy's like Elijah. I wonder if it is. I wonder if Elijah came back. Like if he came back from the dead. Which wasn't out of the question because they, they had already heard of this. They knew that, that that was possible because they understood their God. So Elijah was to come again before the Messiah. Maybe literally Elijah came back. And then the third, Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah, and I, I wasn't going to talk about this, but we've been reading it this week. Jeremiah was called to prophesy to the nation of Israel when they were in, in bondage and when they were serving idols. They were worshiping foreign gods. They were never supposed to do that. And so because of that, God loved them enough to say, you guys are screwing up. And he'd sent so many prophets to them. And finally, he sent Jeremiah and he told Jeremiah, he goes, I want you to go and preach that they need to repent. But realize this ahead of time, they won't repent. They're not going to repent. And despite that, the Lord still sent a prophet to them just in case, you know. And it's, it's confusing to us because we're like, well, God knows everything. If they're not going to repent, why would he send somebody? And, uh, and why, does, you know, why does he keep trying? Well, God continues to pursue his people, those that are his. He won't let them just keep going. And not only that, but then they have the record of the book of Jeremiah later that shows, hey, he told you that this was going to happen. He warned them that judgment was going to come. And so Jeremiah, because he had this ministry of preaching repentance and nobody ever repented and he was told that ahead of time, he was a, he was a, a man of God that weeped over the people that God sent him to speak to. Jesus, in the same way, when he came, he came to his own, the Jewish people, and they received him not. And he weeped over them. He stood on the mountain surrounding Jerusalem. He said, how I long to gather you under my wings like chicks, but you would not come to me. And so Jesus, in the same way, was a man of, of, of sorrows. He was born, he, he had grief 
for his people that just wouldn't turn to him. And so in many ways, they thought he was just like Jeremiah. But Jesus asked this question first because he knows us. He asked them, who do men say that I am? And many people, most people, spend their whole lives worried about what other people think. And so he knows right away that these guys are going to, they're going to know. They're going to know what other people think about Jesus because they've been following him and they care more about what people think than what he thinks. So he asked them the question, who do men say that I am? And of course, they fired it off right away and they answered. They knew. And so Jesus, he gets past that point. He lets him answer. And then he gets to the point where he goes, okay, now we've dealt with everybody else. But who do you think that I am? And that's an important question. Because if we don't know who we think Jesus is, then how are we supposed to either ignore him completely because we think he's a false prophet or follow him completely because we think he's God? Now, if we think that he is the son of God, that he's the Messiah, and that he's the Lord of the universe, and we say that, but we don't follow him, why? So he's getting them to ask themselves that question. And it's important that we all ask ourselves that question what Ezra ended on last week. He said, who do you say that Jesus is? Because when you really think about that question, that is the question that all of eternity hinges on. If, if you don't think that he's Lord and he is, then that means eternal punishment. And if that means if you think that he is and you follow him, then that means your lifestyle should look that way. And so we it, it matters quite a bit. So Jesus cuts to the chase. He knows the disciples know what other people think about him. He wants to know what his disciples think about him. So we ask them there in verse 29, who do you say that I am? And it's interesting to me because Peter's the one that kind of steps up and he answers. Of course, he's always the quickest one to answer. I mean, his mouth is always ready to shoot off. You know, I know people like that. I tend to be that kind of guy. You know, and Peter's just like, he expressed faith right away. And he said, uh, He said to him in verse uh, 29 there, he said, you are the Christ. Now, that means way more than it seems like in our language. It just says you are the Christ. But what it means is you are the Messiah. You're the one that they were talking about in the Old Testament that was going to come, that was going to be the spotless lamb that would pay for the sins of the world. You're going to redeem people, humankind to yourself, one person at a time through the death of your son. That's the Messiah. And they were looking for the Messiah, but they had a wrong idea about the Messiah. They thought he was going to come along and and kind of set up a kingdom here on earth. So I think it's interesting, though, because in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, it says that Peter answered Jesus more than just what he said in Mark. He said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. So it's it's more specific, the son of the living God, because Matthew was written to the Jews, they already had a base relationship. So they specifically said, you are the son of the living God. Not just a savior, but the only savior. One who was foretold and sent by God. Now Jesus responds to Peter's statement of faith. He commends him. He's excited. He says, blessed are you. And uh, in Matthew 16, verse 17, says that Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Now, that's not his last name. It's not Simon Barjona. His name actually is Simon, and Bar means son of, Simon, son of Jonah. So that's how they would say it in their culture. They wouldn't 
say your last name, you'd just be known by your father's name. So <clears throat> he says, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. <clears throat> now this is one of the points where evangelicals and Roman Catholics disagree because they take this verse and they say, well, this is where Jesus set up Peter as the Pope. Well, the problem that I see with that is that Peter was never infallible. As a matter of fact, he was quite flawed, and I think that's why God was able to use him so much and get all the glory because Peter, we talked about it already, he shot off at the mouth. You know, Peter, he's the first one to jump off the boat and get in the water. That's not a bad thing, but Peter was kind of, he was shaky. He would make a profession and then he would take it back real quick. You know, he was, he was the one that everyone knows not so much for what he did right, but for what he did wrong. You know, he was the one that denied the Lord three times on the night of his betrayal. But God restored him. But even after God restored Peter, when he said, Peter, do you love me? Even after he denied him. He said, Peter, do you love me? He said, well, yes, I love you, Lord. He goes, feed my sheep. He restored him to ministry. He wasn't going to put him away, put him on the shelf. He wanted him to know, hey, <laughs> you're going to screw up. That's why I came to die for your sins. You, I never asked you to be perfect. I just asked you to be repentant. And he was. That was the difference between Judas and Peter. Judas denied him, betrayed him, but never repented. Peter did. And so, but Peter in Acts chapter 10 was, he was, he was, this is after God restored him and they started the early church. Peter had a vision one night. Now, Peter's been preaching the gospel for years now. And in Acts chapter 10, he uh, gets a vision from the Lord. And it's this big blanket. The sheet comes down from heaven. Now, to me, if I had this, I'd think I had a bad burrito. But Peter was having a vision from the Lord. And these, all of a sudden, these four-footed animals and these pork products and all the stuff that the Jews were not supposed to eat, they're coming down on this blanket. And the Lord said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. You can eat these things now. And he's like, and so in Acts chapter 10, verse 14 through 15, he actually responded to the Lord by saying, not so, Lord. And it's interesting because Peter had this habit of telling the Lord no, which I don't know about you guys. It's not a good idea. But he said, I have never eaten anything common or unclean. But the Lord responded to him. He kind of rebukes him. He says, what, what God has cleansed, you must not call common or unclean. And so Peter, if you think he was set up to be the first pope and they, that he was infallible, which is what many believe, then you're mistaken because he screwed up lots of times. The only thing that made P Peter anywhere close to perfect was that the Lord was always faithful to correct him. And he was always humble enough to say, Sorry, Lord. You know, he got to that spot and he goes, oh, man, I wasn't listening. That was you telling me that. Sorry about that. My voice been cracking for a while. Whew. So Peter responded by saying, not so, Lord. And we find later that tonight's passage is where he started that habit of saying, Lord, no. Um, my point being that Peter was by no means infallible. Peter's God, however, is completely perfect. 
And uh, the thing that made Peter a good disciple was the fact that he, when he was corrected, he responded by repenting. He said he was sorry, and his actions followed that, that confession. He would respond with a soft heart, learning, uh, willing to learn from the Lord. So that being said, what I do believe that Jesus is saying here is that on this rock, or literally on this little stone, he would build his church. But what is he talking about? Peter's name literally means stone. But I don't think that's not where he's talking about that stone. He's talking about what Peter had just said. He said, you are the Christ. You're the son of God. That is the confession that God builds the church on. Most of us have nothing at all in common. We might have a few things, but not anything that really matters. You know, we might have the same eye color, but we got a lot of different interests and dislikes and likes. But the thing that holds the church of God together is the confession that Jesus is the authority. He is the head of the church. He's the foundation that God built the church on. And because he can't be shaken, the church can't be shaken. That's what he says there. So Romans 10, I think, puts it a little more clearly than I can. So I'll just read from Romans 10, verse 9. It says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So, from, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The point is not that whoever just says it, because I've said a lot of things that haven't measured to an anthill of beans. You know, I've said lots of stuff that I've never come, come clean on. But what he's saying is that whoever believes these things inwardly to the point that their life outwardly is transformed by the knowledge of Jesus Christ and who he is, these will in fact be saved. So on this rock or this confession, this belief that leads to action, Jesus will and is continuing to build his church. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against his church because it's founded on him. If your life is completely built on the solid rock that uh, Matthew chapter 7 talks about, you know, uh, Jesus actually said in Matthew chapter 7 verse 24, he said, He who hears my words and takes them and puts them into practice will be like a man that built his house on a foundation made of rock, stone. But he who ignores these words will be like the man that built his house on sand. And when the wind came and the waves crashed, the foundation washed away and the house fell over. It, it didn't stand. And so what he's saying is that that's how he builds the church. The same way, in, in fact, that he builds our lives upon him, he builds each one of us individually, but then corporately he pieces us together and makes a building called the church. And we oftentimes think about a church and we go, it's the, the building down the street with the beautiful stained glass. And no doubt those places are beautiful, but the church of God is not made of wood. It's not made of brick. It's made of human beings that have set apart their life and said, Lord, I'm going to follow you. You're my savior. You're my Lord. You're my leader. And so that's how God builds the church on that confession and on a lifestyle that proves that that confession wasn't just words. So verse 30. Then Jesus strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. 
And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. He spoke this word openly, and then Peter took him aside, and he began to rebuke him. Once again, you know, this is the first time that Scripture shows Peter rebuking the Lord. I kind of jumped ahead to Acts chapter 10, where he later still has that issue. But here he rebukes the Lord. Now, I read through and recovered what we studied last week and kind of bogged us down a little bit. But I did that because it's like Ezra was saying, we were kind of studying half the passage. Peter has just come off a mountaintop. He's just made this confession. It's probably the high point of his life. And I want to tell you that when you profess Jesus to be your Lord for the first time, that's as high as it ever gets. That's that's like the turning point in your life. And for Peter, he had just come to that and he made that confession. And then right after that, (laughs) kind of built up in pride, he has this issue here. He he sees the Lord and he wants to follow him. And who wouldn't want to follow a guy that is uh, feeding multitudes of people with just a few pieces of bread? He's healing people that have never seen. He's healing people that have gone blind since they've been born. He's healing people that are sick, just plain old sick. And he's restoring people. He's setting free captives that are oppressed. And uh, he's doing all these things. Who wouldn't want to follow that guy? He's going to be popular, right? So Jesus here, he says, I'm going to be rejected by the elders. I'm going to be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes. These are all the important people of the day. So they're going, wait a minute. But that's already been happening. If you've been with us for the last few chapters since the end of chapter 2, Jesus has been being opposed by those people for a long time. So if he's telling them this, they're probably going, well, yeah, that's, that's been happening. But then he says, and then I'm going to be killed. And I think Peter stopped listening at this point. He was like, wait a minute, you said you're going to be killed? I don't know about you guys, but I, I can't think of anything to relate to this other than my job. If my boss pulled me into his office one day and he said, hey, I just need to tell you a few things. Um, the, the leadership of this, uh, this corporation, they're, they're not liking me a whole lot. They're going to reject me. They don't really like having me as, uh, as an employee. And uh, they, they don't like me so bad that I think they're actually going to kill me. Actually, not, I think they're gonna, they're, they've already told me they're going to kill me. Or we can even take it from that and say they're going to fire me that's a little bit melodramatic. I get it. But <laughs> they say, hey, they're going to fire me. And you really like your boss, but he's going to be fired next week. So do you want to keep working for that company? Maybe he was the reason you were staying there. And that's the point Peter's at at this point. He's following Jesus because he loves Jesus. And they're going to kill him. Wait a minute, Lord. No, 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 no. You can't be killed. We really like you. And so Peter, at this point, already stopped listening. He didn't listen to the next section that said, and then I'm going to be rise, I'm going to rise on the third day. I'm going to be alive still. I'm going to defeat death. I'm going to pave the way. No, he only hears, your Savior is going to be killed. And so at this point, he rebukes the Lord. He stops and he says, wait a minute, this isn't what I thought it was. You're not the Savior that I thought you were. I don't know about this. And he starts to tell the Lord, no. Now, if you ever get to that spot, realize you're in the wrong spot. If you're saying, Lord, I know that this is your will, but I don't want to realize you need to repent because his will is not only the best thing that can happen to us. It's it's the safest place to be. If the Lord puts you in a really dangerous spot, it's always the safest place to be. 
And Peter, knowing that he's following Jesus, knows his Savior's going to get killed. You can tell that the wheels are already rolling. Wait a minute, if I'm with you and they want to murder you, they're going to know I walked with you. They're going to want to kill me too. And we find that later on, that when Peter follows Jesus and he's betrayed and he follows them as he's being put in jail, they're going to put him to trial. People that are along behind him, he's going to trail them behind Jesus as he's being drug up to the leaders. <laughs> Peter gets asked questions by the people that are around. Hey, wait a minute. Are you one of those Galileans? Haven't you been with Jesus? They didn't say, hey, we're going to kill you because you were with Jesus. They just asked him, have you been with Jesus? And he says, no, absolutely not. Because he's trying to preserve his own life. And that's what we do. So he spoke this word openly. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He told them openly, hey, I'm going to get killed. And he didn't tell him because he thought he might get killed. God knows. He's all-knowing. He knew that's what he came for, and he knew that was what was going to happen. And he knew that it had to happen, because that's why he came, to redeem us. You see, so far, Peter liked everything that Jesus was about, but all of a sudden, he learned something about the Lord he was not too keen on. And that happens. We oftentimes have preconceived ideas about who Jesus is. We think we know, but we have no idea. And the reality is, is that Jesus didn't change. Just all of a sudden you learn something new. And uh, the question is, will you still worship him if he tells you something about himself that you weren't ready for? And that, that's where faith comes in. The interesting thing is that Jesus isn't telling the disciples this in order to get their approval. He's telling them this because he knows what will happen. And when it happens, he wants them to be comforted. Hey, he told us this was going to happen. Now what? You know? And so... Peter had pulled Jesus aside to rebuke him away from everyone. But then Jesus turns around and he looks at his disciples and he rebukes Peter openly. He wants them to know that, you know, if they even if they had an inkling of a thought that Peter had, he wants to correct them. Verse 33. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus looks at Peter and he corrects him sharply, letting him know right there and then that he is not thinking God's way, but he's thinking in man's way. And God's ways are higher than our ways. So he calls him what I think is probably the worst thing you can call somebody. Satan, traitor, you know, a luminous one, you know, is, is what Satan was supposed to be. But Satan turned from God and he rebelled. And then he's dragging people with him. And this does not mean that Peter is Satan, by the way. This just means that he's being tempted by Satan. And so he's following Satan at this point by disagreeing with the Lord, by telling the Lord no. And he's speaking things that Satan himself had already tempted Jesus with in the desert to be comfortable. No, no, you don't have to die. Why don't you just, I'll give you a kingdom. You just bow down and worship me. That's what uh, Satan told Jesus in the desert. And so uh, every temptation that Satan brought to Jesus was to feed his fleshly appetites. He said, hey, you've been fasting. You're hungry. Why don't you just take that stone and turn it into bread? And Jesus said, no, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then he told him, hey, God said that he would protect you if you were to fall. Why don't you climb up on top of the temple and jump off? You know, the desire to look powerful. You know, that's a temptation, right? Jesus said, no. I won't tempt the Lord my God. And then, and only then, he got to the spot and he said, 
hey, you see all the kingdoms of the earth? Every one of them can be yours if you'll just bow down and worship me. And Jesus didn't succumb to that temptation either because he was going to die on the cross to redeem mankind and start a kingdom of his own anyway. He didn't have to worship Satan. Besides that, man shall not, live, man shall not worship anyone but the Lord his God. And so he withstood all those temptations. And now Peter, in the same way, is being a mouthpiece of Satan in a way by saying, hey, you don't have to go to the cross. Don't do that. That'll hurt. And then we won't have our leader. And then you won't be powerful. You won't have your kingdom on this earth. And, and, and Jesus just rebukes him. He says, that's not my way. That's not God's way. That's your way. My way to heaven is death on the cross. And so that's what Jesus did. There's a cost involved in everything that we do. So verse 34 says, When he called the people to himself with his disciples, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, meaning to follow me, let him deny himself and take him his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The reality is, is that most people today that you know are giving up their soul for something temporary. They're giving up for hobbies. They're giving it up for a relationship. They're giving it up for power and prestige. They're giving up their soul for something that cannot satisfy and will rust and destroy. Think about your favorite toy. Now, I'm not saying that having stuff is a bad thing. I used to love having my motorcycle, and I miss it. And now I have a, now I have a boat that I like to go fishing in. I don't go very often, but I like having my boat. But what's the reality about possessions? Those possessions, when you buy them, they start to rust. My boat is aluminum, but the trailer is steel, and it's going to start to rust. The wood that's on the decking is going to rot. The reality is, is that after owning it for about 10 years, I'm going to have to go through it and replace most of the things that it's made out of. It's not because I don't take care of it. It's just because things just get old. These bodies, think about them. How much time do you spend in front of the mirror trying to make sure that it doesn't look like it's old? When the reality is, it's old. And it's okay, because these bodies are temporary. That boat is not going to last me 30 years. It was never meant to. But this life is temporary. And the fact that things do get old should remind us. They're a constant reminder that we're not going to be here forever. And yet we have eternity. And so the reality is, is that we can either take our time and pour it into our stuff and our positions and you name it first, or we can store up treasures in heaven. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not steal it, break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Peter has this issue with Jesus because Jesus says he's going to die. And to Peter, that means the end. There's nothing else. But the reality is, is that Jesus dying is the doorway 
for you and I to go and be with him. I heard, uh, I listened to Christian rap. That may surprise you because I'm not of the rap looking type. But uh, the guy's name's Trip Lee. And he's got this line in one song. It says, death is just the doorway to my faithful lover, meaning to Jesus. And so death for the Christian is not the end. It's the beginning. It's the time where we get to actually go and, and be with the Lord forever. You know how long forever is? I know that everything seems like it takes forever, like stoplights and, you know, waiting on the microwave when you're really hungry. But forever is way longer than that. It seems like people say forever for shorter and shorter times nowadays because we have everything at our fingertips all the time. But forever is a long time. I heard it described one time as like if you look over at the wall over there and you drew a tiny dot. That, uh, and the, just imagine that the whole wall is a timeline and that it goes all the way around because it's continuous, eternity, right? But if you put a dot over there, that'd be like our 70 years that we think is forever. And then eternity would actually be the line that would be continuously drawn along the outside of this room ad nauseum for infinity, just forever. That's forever. That's 70 plus or minus years. It's not very long. So the reality is, is that we can either spend our whole life worrying about building kingdoms here, or we can spend our life building Storing up treasures in heaven. And so that's what Jesus is calling Peter to do. Jesus is saying, stop thinking about earthly things. Stop thinking about death. Stop thinking about possessions or prestige. Think about the kingdom of God that's everlasting. He tells Peter that if he's not careful, his desire for comfort and prestige and stature amongst people will cause him to deny his Savior. Because that's what he's doing. When you say, Lord, no, you're denying the Savior. You're saying, Lord, no. Wait a minute. That's a contradiction in terms. If you, if you have somebody that you call your master and you tell them no, you're saying, you're my master unless, of course, I want to say no. And that's not how the Lord works. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And so he's telling Peter here, be careful. You're treading on thin ice. But So verse 38 says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulteress, and this sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So, if we're ashamed of him here, why would we want to go and be in heaven with him? We wouldn't. So he's just saying, okay, now that you realize that you don't think the way that I do, listen to what I want to teach you. And so he teaches them that comfort's not the final destination, that prestige is not the final destination, but he is the final destination. Jesus tells Peter and the other disciples here that if they really want to follow him, it's going to cost them something. They must put off any preconceived notions about who he is and what he came to do and be open to the fact that it might not be what they expected. We must get rid of our ideas of who we think that Jesus is and really start asking him, who are you, Lord? And then he'll tell us. we got to just read his word. It's plain as day. We have, we have the ability to have one if we want. We have Bibles all over the place. So when he does teach us something that we didn't know before about himself, we can be ready and already be decided in our hearts that we will serve him no matter what. And who knows, he might call one of us to do something that might cost us our lives. But most of the time, he's just, he's just calling us to be obedient in the daily stuff, to seek him first. And uh, when we do that, most of the time, however, he's simply wanting us to be open to be used by him in the way that he wants to use us. He says, okay, you're calling me Lord. Go do this. 
And he's not doing it so he can just be a, a mean ruler. He wants us to find joy and peace in this earth. And we won't find it in the things of this world. We're going to find it in following him, being obedient. So God will call us to do hard things, but they will be for his glory and they'll be for our good because he has our best interests in mind. And when we see him face to face, specifically, I want to say when I see him face to face, I want him to be able to say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So 